Listener Production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. Navigating life as an elite international footballer isn't easy. And when faced with her own yearning to become a mum, Katrina Gorey didn't want to choose one over the other, even if it meant embarking on that journey on her own. Minnie, as she is affectionately known, is one of Australia's top footballers with 78 caps for the Matildas. She's played in the World Cup, the Rio Olympics, Asian Cup, and was named the AFC Women's Player of the Year in 2014. She spent her career jet-setting to different competitions all over the world, including Canada, the US, Japan, Norway and Australia. There is no off-season and little time between seasons as well. Yet, in amongst this hectic schedule, Katrina has found time for something so very important, to become a mum, putting aside her Tokyo Games goal to give birth to little Harper this year. A mini-mini who has changed this Matilda's life forever. Minnie has paved her own path to becoming an elite footballer and mum, and she recently opened up about her own battle with an eating disorder and has raised important questions whether elite sport should shift their approach to diet and body image in female athletes. This mini story begins as a little girl growing up in a big family in Queensland. Little Katrina was a bit of a menace, I think. Um, I've got two older brothers, so they used to torment me, which I got really good at tormenting <laughs> other people. So, um, yeah, I guess growing up in, in a big family, um, I learnt to do some naughty things and some good things. Um, <laughs> but to sum me up, yeah, probably a little menace with a whole lot of energy. Because tell me more about your family. You said it's a big family. What was life like growing up in that big family and how big is big? Um, big is pretty big. So I'm a, a family of five. I've got an older sister, two older brothers and a younger brother. And then my dad remarried and my stepmom had three boys and then they had a, a little boy together who is one of our favourite siblings. He's got Down syndrome. So <laughs> yeah, we were we were all, all grew up in, in a really big family and um, all around sports pretty much. So Did I just count nine? Is that yep, you, nine, you kids, nine? Nine yep. kids. Wow, okay, that is big. Yep, and pretty special. We get to spend Christmas all together because my mum and dad and stepmom and stepdad all get along. So Christmas is pretty massive. Wow, now. that's awesome. Um, yeah. I want to talk about Dylan a little bit later because mm-hmm. he has a story. He could have a podcast of his own, I think. He could. Um, he could. But we'll talk about your, your younger brother, Dylan, in a moment. But um, can you tell me just, just, you mentioned your parents broke up when you were quite young. Was that? How tough was that? Yeah, it was really tough. Obviously, being so young, I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, Us as kids, we thought we were really naughty and that's why Dad was leaving. And Mm. so we were trying to tell Mum, we'll be good and and then you Mm. guys can just stay together. And and we thought Dad was going on a holiday. And, yeah, it was was really tough, especially having so many siblings um, and so many games to get to and things like that. So... Dad used to have us every second weekend and mm. if we wanted to go to our friend's place that weekend, he would obviously get pretty upset and then uh, we would get upset. So that was really tough but we managed really well and, and we had a, a great life. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I'm really grateful for, for everything that my parents did for us in those times. And, yeah, they just weren't happy together anymore and, and now they are. And it took you a little bit to realise that and do you remember when you realised that? 
Yeah, I was probably much older. It was probably in the, only in the last few years where I kind of unpacked a few things and and realised that um, it obviously did take a bit of a toll. Um, my mum my and dad splitting up and, and then not really understanding why and I, I sat down with, with both of them and kind of told them that, um, that it was pretty hard on, on all of us kids and I think we've all kind of spoken about it now and, yeah, but it's just a part of life and, and I know a lot of families do go through it but... Yeah, we, we got through it. You, um, and then you had a big family, as we mentioned before. Is there something about life in a big family that people may not understand? Is there a quirk of living in a big family? I guess we were always doing fun things. If somebody was sitting inside, there'd be two people outside. So we were always doing things and, um, yeah, I guess we were pretty lucky to have mum and dad because they would take us to... I think 10 soccer games a weekend. Um, Amanda had netball and basketball. So I really, really don't know how they did yeah. it. Yeah. How so, did they so schedule th- that? That is impossible. Uh, it, it actually was incredible. I was playing two games. Um, both of my brothers, all three of my brothers were playing two games at that time. And they would literally run from one field to another, ask friends to take one child. And yeah, it was, they honestly had a whole schedule of yeah. uh, the weekend. And then they played. Uh, netball as well on the weekend. So we'd all go and watch them. Um, and what sports? You mentioned you had, like, obviously soccer was mm-hmm. and football was big for you. Were there any other sports that you played growing up? Not really. Mum tried to get me into netball and I um, started booting the balls away and chucked a tantrum <laughs> on the court. So <laughs> right. That lasted uh, one, one game. Because um, you wanted to play soccer or you just didn't want to be there? I just wanted to be like my brothers. I just wanted to play soccer and yeah. we had just dropped a couple of them at, at the soccer game and I had to go to netball game. So I wasn't really happy about that. <laughs> and, yeah, eventually got my own way and mum let me play soccer. Is that So that's how it began? Yeah, that's how it began. I Yeah, I just followed my brothers around absolutely everywhere. Um, tried to play in their team, but that didn't really work out. So I eventually found my own and, yeah, was a little right back. And you played with boys as well? What was that experience yeah. like? How do you reflect on that? Uh, it's probably the best thing that ever happened, I guess, um, for my strength on the ball and just physically at that stage the boys aren't much stronger or quicker. So at that point they were better. Uh, so I played with them until I was about 14 until I had to stop playing with them. So um, I think for a lot of us in that generation, playing with the boys was the best thing we could have done at that point. We didn't really have many uh, girls' pathways or girls' teams, so uh, we didn't know any different. Um, But now, obviously, the next generation, they have a lot of the pathways um, and, and, you know, girls' teams and things, but I still think they should be playing with the boys. You still think that's the case? Absolutely. There's more teams. It's it's much harder, I feel like. And, yeah, they, they are more physical and, and a bit faster. So I think it just it grows you quicker and you develop a lot quicker as well. Um, 14 seems a long time to be in a girls' competition. That seems like a long time till you had that opportunity. Yeah, I was playing girls and boys at that time. So I would um, go and play in the girls' team and then run and play in the boys' team. So <laughs> I was kind of doing a bit of both. Um, and then I got picked up by the QAS. So I ended up just being a part of that program. Wow. And that's obviously when that started to get serious, when you were 14? 
Yeah, uh, I got into the QIS pretty early and that's when um, all the national team players, so I was training with, you know, 30-plus-year-olds, which was pretty daunting when, when you're so so young and so small and you don't really realise the pathways in, in football and if I even wanted to be there. I was just, you know, playing football for fun um, and I ended up there and I would I would go to training and I'd be absolutely scared of, you know, even getting the ball or... Um, being around the girls, I didn't really know how to communicate with, you know, older people at that point. So, yeah, that was that was really tough for me and I ended up um, kind of getting asked to leave when I was 15 years From old. From the academy program? Yeah. And I should say QAS is Queensland Academy of Sport. Yeah, Queensland yeah. Academy of Sport. So it's kind of where our programs... Um, Everyone was in the QAS at that time, uh, all the national team players and pretty much the best players in Queensland. So you got asked to leave? Yeah, I just didn't have a very good attitude. I was pretty much too scared to train. Um, I think I faked a few injuries back then too. Uh, How old were you when you got asked to leave? uh, I was 14. So the same year that you entered the program? Yeah, I, I think I was only in there for maybe six months, maybe close to a year. And then, yeah, I think that was the best thing that ever happened to me because it made me realise what I wanted. You know, when something gets taken, you realise how bad you wanted it. And I sat down with my mum and I said, you know, I I think I do really want to be a football player and um, I now know there's a pathway in football, so I'm going to get myself back in there. So how did you do that? Uh, I went and played in an open women's team in like a an NPL team, so the the top of um, Queensland's club. And, yeah, I got got to be around older players, um, obviously not as good at the time, but, yeah, they kind of, you know, taught me how to communicate, how to earn the respect of players um, and, and to train under, I guess, a, a fair bit of pressure that I wasn't used to. So um, that was kind of around the time when the W League was coming about uh, and I headed off to Melbourne after that for a trial in Melbourne Victory. So you went down for the W League. Did you say the start of the W League? Uh, it was the second year in for the W League. So I went to to a few of the uh, first year of it and I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. And at that time, Brisbane Royal were absolutely stacked with national team players. So I knew that I probably wouldn't get an opportunity there and decided to head head down to Melbourne and see if I could um, get a get a contract there. And I landed a contract, didn't get much game time for the first little bit. And the week of my formal, they said, um, you know, you can start this game. What do you want to do? And I said, I won't go to my formal. I want to start the game. And, oh. <laughs> and that's kind of where my career took off after that first game. What year was... Was that and how old were you? Because formals can be from 10 to 12. Were you talking year 12 it or year 10? It must have been, yeah, 2009. Yeah. And how old are you? were you then? I would have been 17. Yeah. Yeah. Big moment. What was the early days in the W League like? They were different. Obviously, I didn't really know what a professional environment was. Uh, at that time, we kind of thought that's what professional environments were until uh, now when I look back and... Yeah, it was probably about club level. Um, But for me, I was just so excited to be in a pretty strong team, uh, mixing with national team players. You know, Melissa Barbieri was there at that time. Tal Karp was there and and they really 
uh, helped me that year to grow as a person and as a player. And, um, yeah, I was just so thankful for that opportunity because that's kind of where it all started for me. And, um, yeah, I've, I've loved the W League ever since and it's been Good to see it grow. Um, obviously, there's so much more to more to do, but yeah, I'm just really grateful that we have a league here now, and you know, the younger generation can enjoy that. And it's no longer W League; it's A League no. Women's, and A League is A League Men's now. That's a big change. It's an important change. Yeah, it is important. Um, definitely hard to remember that. Yeah, it's now A League. Took me for you saying- to say it 20 <laughs> times before I suddenly remembered as well. Yeah, I just, I mean, we've been saying it for 10 years now, so I'm going to have to, you know, <laughs> repeat it in the mirror a few times to, to say it on um, media. But, yeah, I think it, it's definitely important. We are united uh, as the men and women's team. And, you know, as Brisbane Raw, we've been under one banner for a long time. So I think it's about time that the leagues have kind of combined and, mm. and we can both get around each other. Um, I just want to pause because I want to talk about your brother Dylan um, mm-hmm. who, as you mentioned, was born with Down syndrome, you and him have a really special relationship. What yeah. impact has he had on your life? Uh, massively. Um, obviously, I didn't know too much about Down syndrome uh, when he was first born, but I've obviously learned a lot now and I know how much happiness he brings to all of our mm. lives. I mean, you know, I could have the worst day and I could head over to my dad's house and he would just say something hilarious or show me his muscles. And, um, <laughs> yeah, he, he's just the light of all of our lives and, and we are really, really lucky to have him. You said from the moment he was born, you kind of mothered him. Is that how you took on a special role? Not just yeah. sister? Yeah. I mean, I was always obsessed with babies. I always loved kids. Um, I kind of begged my dad to have another kid. So, um, yeah, I kind of mothered him and also my nephew, Josiah, and I tried to just do everything for them. And, yeah, I guess that's where we got our special bond. And, yeah, he's followed me around with all my football journeys, which is pretty special, and, and he he knows all the girls. I think um, <laughs> Michelle Heyman's still his favourite and his is wife, right? and, he, and he proposes to her every time he yeah. sees her. Um, but, yeah, he, he's come to every game. He's come to World Cups and Olympics, and, um, yeah, he, he's probably one of our greatest supporters. You're... Um Ever, all the brothers and sisters, because you grew up in this big family, but you kind of took on a role teaching him things and explain that to me. What was that like for him being the youngest and being in this family with all you kids? Yeah, he, well, we found out that he was, um, he was pretty Down syndrome, so they didn't think he would be able to really walk or um, learn things. And yeah, I guess he had so many siblings to learn off and he learned things pretty quickly. And even now when we uh, are trying to talk about him, he'll be like, I know you're talking about me. <laughs> so, and we're kind of like, how does he even know? Or he'll have his headphones on and um, he'll be in a completely different zone and I'll say something about him. He goes, I know you're talking about me. And just like, <laughs> he's just such a smart kid. And yeah, it's been so exciting to see him grow and, and mm. learn things and and pretty much show people that, you know, there is no boundary for him. They just, they keep on learning it and yeah, he, he does. He's at work now. He he works mm-hmm. what um, does he do? three days a week. Um, he does like pottery. Oh, awesome. Yeah, cool. so it's pretty cute. And you mentioned before, he did become a bit of an unofficial mascot for both the Brisbane Royal and the Matildas as well, oh. didn't he? He's there at the games and Absolutely. in the shirts. 
Yeah, he wears all of his um, his Aussie shirts. Mine don't really fit him, but uh, <laughs> I usually try and steal one of the other girls uh, for him. Um, but, yeah, he comes to all the Raw games, usually knows all the Raw players and, um, yeah, everyone goes and gives him a high five after the game, which is pretty cute. He just loves it. I mean, mind you, he does sit in the grandstand with his headphones on. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like the noise, he, does he? <laughs> he hates noise, but he's there. He is watching and he always tells me I played a good game, even if I haven't. So <laughs> he's, oh, he's a perfect supporter. We all need that person in our family who does Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, what do people who haven't been around someone with Down syndrome, um, if they haven't had that experience, what do they maybe not understand about you know, having someone in your family or someone you know with Down syndrome? Yeah, I guess just how much happiness they bring. I think for any pregnant person, no, they they kind of, you know, you get a test and um, if they do have Down syndrome, they ask if you want to abort it straight away. And I think research has shown more than 98% of Down syndrome kids are aborted and I think that's pretty sad knowing how much um, happiness Dylan does bring us and, you know, he is like any of us. He does everything that we can do. Mm. Yeah, he can't drive and and he probably can't live by himself but I don't think my dad would have that any other way to yeah. be honest because, yeah. you know, he loves everything about Dylan, doing everything for Dylan. And, yeah, I think it's... We don't. I don't think anyone realise how much happiness they bring and um, what they're really capable of because mm. they really do shine. And he's very special. Very, he is very, 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 very special. special. Um, let's go back to football because you you played in the A League. You went from Melbourne. You've played overseas as well. How did your from those first days in what was then the W League, now the A League Women's? Where did your career then take you? Um, I headed over to Kansas City. Um, in the NWSL. And yeah, I guess that's where I kind of learnt what professional is. Their league over there is pretty well established. Uh, a lot of national team players, a lot of quality players, uh, I think mainly because they have that co- the college system over there. So um, th- there's quality players uh, everywhere you go. So that's kind of where my career took me. Um, I had a pretty good experience in Kansas City with the players that I got to play with. I didn't get much game time, which was a bit hard because I was coming off the back of um, winning the Asian Player of the Year and um, FFA Player of the Year. So that that was a bit hard for me, um, but definitely another, you know, another chapter that I I really learnt from and I came back um, to the W League hungrier than ever. You've played in Japan, the US and Norway. Who supports women's sports and football the best out of all those countries and why? I mean, America, I think. Um, But my experience in Japan was probably the best um, experience I've had. I absolutely love Japanese people. I think they, the respect they have for each other and uh, for their country is uh, something pretty special and I really, really enjoyed playing over there. Their supporters were were pretty amazing. They would bring little gifts for all the players all the time. For the supporters? Um, Yeah, they would bring, some of our girls got like Louis Vuitton bags. Really? Um, From fans? Yeah. Wow. Did you get it? What did you get? Did you get a Louis Vuitton bag? I didn't get a Louis Vuitton bag. I wanted to steal (laughs) the Louis Vuitton bag. Um, uh, Just like little gifts. Um, So little pens and little t-shirts and toys and things. Um, (laughs) Which is pretty Who cute. Who got the Louis Vuitton that, bag? I'm still stuck on it. 
<laughs> I can't remember one of the players. It wasn't Caitlin Ford either because she was playing over there at that time. Um, if it had been her, I would have stolen. Yeah. I can't see Caitlin liking a Louis Vuitton bag anyway, so. Yeah, she, she has Louis Vuitton everything. Does she? Yeah. Well, okay, I take that back. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, she loves it. So, yeah, I think playing in Japan was pretty awesome. Um, I think seeing their younger kids walking around with the ball at their feet, like four or five years old, being able to juggle more than I can now, was was pretty cool to see. And just their whole country. I, I loved playing in Japan. So that's probably my favourite place I've ever played. And I think in the next few years, they're really going to invest um, in their programs and, and get their leagues as good as the rest of the world. What year were you playing over there? It must have been... 2016 or 2017. Yeah, yeah. So a bit later on in my career, um, but definitely, uh, yeah, one of the best experiences of my life. What's something about the international footballer life uh, that people don't quite understand until you're involved in it and you're playing? It is hard. Like I think being in another country um, and playing with different teammates and, and things like that sounds amazing. But I think being away from your family is really, really challenging. And I guess I I feel for uh, most of the national team players at the moment who haven't seen their families for two years because it does really, really get exhausting um, just not having that that physical contact and, and I guess long-distance relationships as well. Um, they they really suffer. But I guess just, I get, I guess just in general, being a professional athlete, it, it sounds amazing, but I think, yeah, there are definitely some really hard times. You can't be at your peak performance all the time and when you're not at your peak performance, it, it mentally is a really challenging place to be. Um, and I think most most athletes have probably found themselves in that that state. Take me back to your Matilda's debut. Uh, it was actually in Japan. I got called in. It was 2012. I was over in Canada playing actually at the time. It wasn't. It was a semi professional league back then. And yeah, I got my first call up. I couldn't believe it. I didn't think I'd get a minute. And I knew Japan were like. I think first or second in the world at that time, pretty much um, we were chasing shadows. And, yeah, I went on, I think it must have been about the 70th minute and I didn't touch the ball, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was just amazing uh, to finally debut and after that, yeah, it's kind of been a bit of a whirlwind and, um, yeah, the best, probably one of the best days of my life. 2014 was a massive year. I've already alluded to it. You talk about being um, playing over there in, in the US, in Kansas. AFC Player, Women's Player of the Year and the FFA Player of the Year. Was that just like the peak? What was How amazing was that year for you? Yeah, it was really amazing and it was really unexpected. I was just the really... The peak is yet to come. I didn't mean to say that. Yeah, the I didn't peak mean is, that. Yes. is yet to come for sure. <laughs> I think I think in the next few years I think maybe it'll be my peak. But yeah, <laughs> yeah don't hold me to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, 2014 was a pretty amazing year. Um, I think for the Matildas as well as kind of when everything started happening for us and and most of us had played together for quite a long time. So we, we were becoming more established in, you know, Australian football, I guess. And uh, I think I was just really enjoying football. I had no expectation on myself or any, any pressure and was just really uh, playing for the pure enjoyment and 
Uh, Michelle Hamer was my roomie at the time and, and that's literally what our goal was, was, you know, to have fun on the field and, you know, just enjoy it. And I guess after 2014 winning those awards, I had more pressure on me and more expectation on me. And I think, yeah, I guess that gets really hard as an athlete. You can either really excel or, um, yeah, you can kind of go go down in the dumps a little bit. I got to stay up there for a little while, which was exciting and got to really enjoy my football for a couple of years. Uh, but, yeah, got pretty exhausted to the back end. Yeah, why is that? Uh, I think just, yeah, back-to-back seasons, um, playing in the W League at that time. Uh, we all kind of played the chunk of the W League and then went over overseas somewhere to play and, and we really didn't give our body and our mind that time to kind of be rejuvenated and uh, miss football for a couple of weeks. So, yeah, I think mentally I just got really, really fatigued and, and was pushing my body to um, crazy limits and eventually uh, got injured and then mentally that puts you in a, a pretty hard space as well and, yeah, I think it was just one after another after another and, uh, yeah, I was pretty fatigued at the end. How did you get yourself out of that and how how bad did it get at that stage? It was pretty bad. Obviously, I've spoken uh, about my eating disorder a little bit, but I think that's kind of where it started for me mentally. I just wasn't really in a good space and um, I guess I had lost control of what I felt like football and um, things in my life and uh, food was something that I felt like I could control and, yeah, I just found myself in a pretty dark place. I uh, thought, thought I could kind of overcome it by myself and, you know, a year went on and a year and a half went on and eventually I um, contacted our national team psych at the time and sat down with her and had a really, really good conversation with her and tried to figure out ways to kind of um, get control of uh, my life again, I guess, and, and football and... I think the the best thing that I ever did is sat down with my family and, and told them what was going on and really opened up about, I guess, you know, the demons that I was facing at that time in my life. And, yeah, from then on I, I kind of learnt to figure out my triggers and, and um, what, what brought me to that point, I guess, and um, how to get out of it. What were your triggers? I don't. I guess football was a massive trigger for me. Um, I think. I mean, they started bringing in being being weighed before and after trainings. Um, you didn't before. have that before. No, no, mm. not, not. I guess. I guess as uh, football has progressed and gotten more prof- professional, more things have been brought into to the environment, and yeah, I think looking at scales um, for most women is pretty hard I think and being in a being in a um, professional environment it gets even harder even though we're not a weight sport and and you would hear it around the table is oh how much how much did you did you lose weight and oh, I'm not going to eat this or I'm not going to eat that and I guess it it kind of yeah it does take a toll eventually and yeah I found found myself in a pretty dark place for a couple of years and I think yeah my football reflected that um, for a while and think that that mentally fatigued me as well. And obviously that mental side of it and that mental focus of focusing on on food, as you said, does that just became an obsession for you? Yeah, I think it did. And I guess then um, obviously, you know, you get in your head and you're like, oh, I obviously look, look, look bigger and people are talking about me. And um, especially in a professional environment, you don't, 
want people to know that you have unhealthy habits or, um, you know, you're going through a hard time. You, yeah, you just want to put on a brave face. And I did that for far too long. And yeah, it just it creates a, a bigger hole, I think. And I just kept on getting further and further down. And I, um, yeah, kept on saying, you know, I'm strong enough. I can pull myself out. And I just felt, find myself getting worse and worse and worse. And I told a few of my friends, I think, eventually, and, and they kind of helped. But it wasn't, I think, until I told my family and had their support, which is when things really started to change for me. Mental torture. Absolutely, so absolutely. And and the more I've, I guess, spoken out about it, the more I've realised is, is so many athletes have kind of gone through a, a similar thing and, yeah, it is it is really hard to, to pull yourself out. And some athletes can do it without any help, but I'm just glad mine only took me um, a couple of years because I know athletes, you know, get stuck in that for, for many, many years and their, their sport end, ends up have, having to end. It's a real problem in Australian sport and in Australian women's sport as well. We've spoke, I've spoken to a few people on the podcast who've had similar problems. Are we missing something here? Like we, we've, in the way, you know, the professionalisation of women's sports at the moment and that focus on pinch tests and, um, and diets and that constant weighing of trainings, do we need to rethink the way in professional sport we approach this with, with female athletes in particular? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, for football players, I don't really understand too much about weight and, um, you know, DEXA scans and, uh, you know, pinch tests and things like that. At the end of the day, you know, if a player is performing, you know, what what more what more do you want out of them? You know, someone being a little bit skinnier, I don't, I don't think they're going to perform any better. So I think think that's really hard and I guess the conversations about it, maybe maybe they just could be different. But I guess, you know, so, some some females can, you know, take it on the chin and they're, they're completely fine with it. But, yeah, I guess other others take it in a different way. And, yeah, obviously th- those things aren't put in place to, to make us feel that way, but they are and I guess it's trying to figure out a way to you know, give us that professional environment. Obviously, those um, th- that feedback helps us. Yeah, but I guess figuring out a way um, to communicate it differently or um, to know it's not, not just about a number, it's about performance as well and um, how we're going to help your performance, not just uh, look at the number on the scale, I guess. Mm. Yeah, 100%. When did you realise and how low did it get and especially when did you realise that you had a problem? Um, probably not until I um, started speaking to the psychologist. I mean, I probably knew I had a, I had a problem, but I just uh, ignored it for a long time uh, and just figured I'd I'd be fine. This is just what athletes go through. And, um, yeah, you tell yourself all, all different stories. But, yeah, it wasn't until I spoke to my psychologist and and she kind of, um, you know, spoke to me, me about eating disorders and, yeah, I guess that's when it kind of hit me and I, I realised that's exactly where I was and um, I, I needed a plan to get myself out and, and, you know, football wasn't my priority anymore. It was my health and... And that's where my focus needed to be. And, yeah, I guess getting that support and, and knowing I had people to confide in when I was having a hard day or, or having bad thoughts um, definitely helped me get through it. Is that something you still have to manage today? No, I don't think so. I think, cool. um, 
maybe before I got pregnant, it was still, you know, I'd be like, oh, that's bad food, that's good food, and I'd kind of name foods and I kind of, you know, I stopped doing that. I don't I don't name foods anymore. I don't think foods are good or bad. Um, I, I look at it to give me energy, mainly to, to feed Harper now. I think that that's she's my priority and I think... Um, really going through pregnancy and and that journey um, taught me to respect and appreciate my body in a, in a whole new world. You'd think being an athlete, you you would do that firsthand. Um, but yeah, it's taken me to to be pregnant and, and to to keep a little one alive. To really have that appreciation for my body and and for what it can really do because it is really something special. You you went through this transitional period for the Matildas. Um, where they did start to have a lot of success, but also, more importantly, you got that exposure and that attention from both the public and the media on top of it. But you were in the setup before all of that had kind of happened. How do mm. you remember that transitional period? Um, I guess it was, I think it all kind of started um, our Rio Olympic qualifiers. I mean, for me and for most of the national team players you speak to, that was probably one of the most special tournaments we've ever played in. We had five games in in 10 days against um, some of the best Asian teams and uh, we had to make top two and we hadn't qualified. I think it was in about 12 years. So there was a lot a lot of expectation riding on us and I think uh, most Australians tuned in to watch the, those qualifiers and I think in our team we had so much belief, you know, it didn't didn't really matter who was playing on the field, everyone was supporting each other, everyone believed in each other um, and everyone backed each other and I think it really showed in that tournament um, the way we celebrated goals, the way we celebrated qualifying um, and I think that's kind of where heads started to turn and, you know, our national team started getting more exposure and and um, I think a, a few months or years later we, we had um, the game in Penrith where, where we um, had the biggest crowd we've ever had and I think uh, singing the national anthem in front of the crowd with all those supporters was uh, one of the most amazing days of, of our life and where I think we all realised um, that, that football in Australia was growing and that the Matildas were, were really growing. I remember back um, when the Matildas, you guys were training in Brisbane and I was working at Channel 9 at the time and I remember I was being at Broncos training and I remember all the journalists going, do you know the, the Matildas are in town? The Matildas are in town. They're training here. I was like, what? Called the FFA that day. And I said, hey, you know, Sam from Channel 9, um, I heard the Matildas are, are in Brisbane. Here they're playing some games and and they're um, they're training here. And and I said, I'd love to know more and, and do a story. And they're like, oh, we didn't think Channel 9 would be interested. And that was the old days where that wasn't a reflection of Channel 9. That was a reflection of, oh, we just didn't think that you'd be interested in, in the female team at all. And I remember you played... I think it was Brazil behind closed doors, closed doors yeah. that that time as as well at that same um, stage. Um, and that just blew my mind. So you talk about that Penrith game and I remember that so vividly because I said to the FFA then, I'm like, well, why wouldn't you play it in front of an open stadium? Because you have, along with netball, the most popular sport for little girls. You can't tell me you wouldn't feel it. Yeah. They tried telling me that they couldn't feel it. And yeah, then... and we and we played at the old ANZ Stadium. Yeah, I think it was a shock to us when we we found out we were playing behind closed doors. 
because I think a lot of our family end up coming and and we <laughs> filled about half of the grandstand anyway with our family and friends. Um, but, yeah, that, that Penrith game I think um, was when it all changed for all of us and I think we really realised how many supporters we had and, you know, how much we have grown the game in the last few years. I feel like it was a field of dreams moment, that Penrith game. It was like, if you build it, they will come. If you just open the doors they will come. But that was a big thing. How do you reflect on the early days of trying to get that support for the Matildas? Anything that you reflect on that reminds you of those, you know, they were tough times? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think we played a few games against um, New Zealand uh, in, you know, Canberra and, and things like that. So yeah, I think it's just so exciting for us to be a part of something so special and to see how far you know, football in Australia has grown and how many more, you know, little girls and little boys are coming out to our games. And I think social media has been a great platform for all of that to to get that exposure and for people to feel closer to us and um, know more about us. And um, I think we got some pretty quirky personalities in our national team, which makes us more exciting, I think. Uh, and yeah, I think, you know, we do have some of the best supporters in the world. And I think 2023 is going to be pretty incredible to have it on on home soil. World Cup on home soil. How did that interest that you had after that Penrith game and after the qualifiers, how did that feed into your success? How did that spur you on? I think it was just, um, you know, people knew more about us and I think we wanted to win more games for, for our supporters and bring more supporters to our games, I think. So... Um, for us, I guess that was an exciting time for us and, and every tournament uh, we went out after that, we, we just wanted to win and, and we wanted to bring more ho- games home uh, so we could have more supporters mm. uh, there and more fan days and things like that. And I think after that we, we started to, you know, get more games because for a long time the national team, you know, we'd play five or six games um, in a calendar year and, and now we... I think we can get up to about 15 or more, mm. depending on if we play tournaments and things. So um, I think that was amazing for us to, you know, be on people's TVs, you know, people being able to tune in on social media and, and being able to have, you know, fan questionnaires and things like that. A lot of us girls, we, we love to, to be a part of those things. So I think being closer to the fans was pretty special. Rio Games, how amazing was that? Heartbreaking at the end? Yeah, it was yeah definitely heartbreaking at the end, but just pretty incredible for us to all be a part of. Obviously, World Cup for us is, is one of our main tournaments, but to be at an Olympic Games with um, you know the whole Australian Olympic team is is something something really special. And uh, we unfortunately didn't get to go into um, the village until we got knocked out. So that was tough, but I think, yeah, being a part of Olympic Games and being an Olympian uh, for the rest of our life is is um, a pretty amazing thing to say and, yeah, definitely heartbreak at the end of it, but we learned, we grew from that. Only Olympian in the family? I am the only Olympian. You use that one fair bit I of the do. dinner table? I do, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it gets brought up often, but... Um, my brothers tell me that they were the reason why I got into it. Oh, there so we go. Then, then I can't really argue with them. Taking a few credits there, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they always do. <laughs> Let's talk about Harper. Um, your beautiful little girl. Mm-hmm. What's life like now with Harper in it? 
It's amazing. I couldn't really uh, picture life without her now. Um, for me, I've always wanted to be a mum. I um, have begged my sister for a long time to have uh, more kids. Um, I'm on their case constantly and eventually I thought, you know, I think it's my time to have a, have a child of my own and, um, yeah, then along came Harper and... Um, it's been it's been uh, far more amazing than I ever expected. You always wanted to be a mum, but why did you want to be a mum at this particular time? Um, I think for me, 2021 was meant to be a bit of a quiet year for the national team. Um, obviously, the Olympics got delayed, so threw a spanner in the works there. Um, and still when I was um, in discussions about IVF and, and what I was going to do, the Olympics still hadn't been confirmed. Um, so ideally did you plan it like Tokyo Games 2020, 2021 I'll have a baby? Harper, yeah. Right. And then I try and get back for the, the following year, which was Asian Cup. So that was kind of my plan and, uh, yeah, just got a bit thrown out the window. But anyway, <laughs> I took a contract over in Norway um, and I always kind of wanted to do IVF uh, in a European country. Um, the donor pool is much bigger. The process is, is much quicker. So, yeah, I was over in Norway and I kind of had an appointment to just ask some questions, I guess. And they only had one appointment that I could get into. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll take the appointment. And I wasn't due for my period, was planning on just heading home in, in a couple of weeks. And, yeah, I um, got my period an hour before uh, I actually walked into the appointment. And for anyone that knows the IVF process, that's kind of when it can start. So mm. they were like, okay, well, we can start today. Um, if you want. And I kind of thought, you know, there's nothing holding me back. It's the Olympics hasn't been confirmed to be played in 2021. And for me, it was um, a, a World Cup on home soil was also in the back of my mind. So I thought IVF, it's not 100%. So if I try the first time and it doesn't happen, then I'll, I'll try and go for the Olympics. And if I fall pregnant, then um, unfortunately I miss out, but I get um, Left yeah, after fate. Baby instead. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, and that was pretty soon before you got on the flight to come home to Australia too, yeah? Yeah, it was um, pretty crazy. So had I had an egg collection, um, had a flight on the Thursday. I wasn't able to have the egg collection when we thought, so I'd have a day later, um, which pushed everything back a little bit. I didn't think I was going to make my flight. Anyway, they um, transferred the egg half an hour before my flight back to Brisbane. Wow, that's insane. So, <laughs> yeah. So I was uh, sitting on the flight, squeezing my legs because I was <laughs> scared it was going to fall out. <laughs> Obviously, that's not a thing. But, um, yeah, I just had my legs up in the air the whole flight. Wow. And, yeah, I um, landed in Brisbane to do a 14-day quarantine. and That would have been a nervous 14 days quarantine. The longest days of my life, yeah. just sitting there wondering when I can take a pregnancy test. I, um, I bought three before I left Norway and I was like, no, I'm going to wait exactly when they told me. I'm not going to take it early. Anyway, I... You knew what bought. pregnant and not pregnant in Norwegian was. <laughs> I right? did. I did. I mean, I just followed the line. Okay. Um, no, but then I uh, took them early and so I called my 
um, sister-in-law at the time, I said, you work close to where I am. Can you please bring me some more pregnancy tests? I've yeah. taken these too early. Anyway, so the first um, two came back negative and then I took another one and I was like, oh, it's probably going to be negative. So I just left it on the counter and I came back an hour later and I flipped it over and I could see a really, really faint line. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, it just it must be a false positive because obviously with the, the trigger shots and the hormones that you're on sure. um, for IVF, it, it can throw a false positive. So I was like, oh, no, 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 I won't tell anyone. And then I waited another day and I took another one and the line just got stronger and stronger. Um, so, yeah, I sat on my bed, I had a big cry, and then I called my sister and... Yeah, said the one that dropped off the pregnancy test. No, the yeah, other one. My, my yeah, my older sister. <laughs> um, so she kind of knew I was going through the IVF process. She was sure. the only one, and so yeah, I called her and she said, "Just wait until you get the blood test. You know, you just never know." And so I was trying not to get too excited, but called called all my siblings anyway to tell them, um, right. and didn't tell my mom or dad. So I saved that for when I got out and saw them. Oh, lovely, beautiful yeah. reaction. Interesting reaction. <laughs> my mum, so I gave them a box that had a pregnancy test, my IVF papers, and then it said uh, little socks that said I love grandma and grandpa, and I think it had a little onesie that said mum is Minnie on it as well. Yeah, cool. Because your nickname's obviously Minnie. Yeah. Yes. So we're all standing around the kitchen table. I give it to my mum and she kind of looks up and she goes, who's pregnant? <laughs> and I was like, I just gave you the box. I'm not going to tell you that somebody else is pregnant. And uh, she swore and she was like, I, I need a minute here because yep. we had just popped out a few babies my siblings had. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, and then my stepdad said that I was amazing and he was so proud of me. I actually said, said I'm really clever um, and, and he was proud of me and that he thought I was amazing. And my dad and my stepmom, my dad thought I was starting a cafe Okay. Mama's mini. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where they get this from. There was a pregnancy test they in there. They hadn't seen you for a really long time. No, so. they were very confused. My stepmom yeah. knew straight away. My mum had never taken a pregnancy test, so she didn't really know what it looked like. Right. She, sure. she just always knew she was pregnant. So, yeah, so it was pretty interesting. Um, but after they, they called me and said, I'm sorry about my reaction, I, I'm really proud of you, uh, um, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll support you no matter what and um, we can't wait to, yeah, welcome this little one into the family. Because you obviously opted to do this on your own. Mm-hmm. Why did you opt for that particular path? Um, I guess I, I never really, I mean, I was happy to, to, to have a partner and do it with them, but at the time I, I found myself that I didn't have a partner. So, yeah, I think... I saw my sister um, raise a child and she was a, a single mum. I saw my mum in the end raising five of us and, and and she was able to do it. And, yeah, I thought I was I was pretty strong and I was pretty capable and so I knew that I had my family support and um, regardless of the tough days, I knew that I'd, I'd have them re- and no matter what and I decided I could do it on my own and, yeah, haven't looked back since. And utilise all those brothers and sisters in the meantime. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Harper's with mum at the moment. So Nona's is getting lots Thank of, you, lots Mrs. of cuddles. Yeah, yeah. lovely. Um, and what kind of support did you receive from the football FFA and Matildas and, and everything? Yeah, they were awesome. Um, obviously, Tony had just um, been newly appointed, um, the head coach. Darson, uh, the coach, yep. Yeah, so he had... 
he called me and and said, you know, we'll be here um, if you decide to return. Uh, we we hope you do. Um, we're super supportive of, you know, maternity leave and everything like that. Um, the whole FA were, were pretty supportive of the whole situation um, and my teammates knew that um, it was only time that I was going to have a child. I always spoke about 2021. Um, being my year and yeah they were they were awesome super supportive um, and I just yeah I'm excited to finally get to see them because it's been a long time since I haven't seen uh, the national team and mm. been around been around them. So many of them playing in the Super League in the UK as well for a really long time so but now they're back in on Australian soil. Given that support that you got from the FFA and the Matildas and there was that beautiful scene when you were 11 weeks pregnant was it with the raw you yeah. you kicked a goal, your teammates knew, you got extra cuddles and cheers. It was a really beautiful moment. There wouldn't be that yeah. many people on the sideline who knew why you were getting so much attention for a no, goal. No, not at all. And I think, yeah, I think the celebration showed um, how, how special it was. Um, I think that'll be a, a pretty special moment that I will hold close to me um, for the rest of my life. And yeah, I guess they they knew how much I was uh, kind of struggling um, <laughs> leading into 11 it. Eleven weeks still playing. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, I think um, the morning sickness uh, would get to me pretty much as I'd start training. So that was really hard. You know, I'd nap in the in the afternoon for four hours or so. So yeah, that was really challenging. And I guess they kind of were there and they were were seeing me when they kind of found out um, it all made sense to them. Uh, and, yeah, I think the goal celebration really shows um, how much it meant to me but how much it all meant to my teammates and how they had my back through through that, that season. Do you think back and reflect on some of the people? You mentioned Melissa Barbieri, Bubs. You know, she really struggled back in the day when she had her, chose to have a family and, you know, her football career was over and she fought so hard to prove that you could be a mum and a footballer and a professional footballer, and she really changed the game. But, geez, it was tough for her. Do you ever reflect on, you know, what she had to go through and now this path that's been created for someone like yourself to be in that position, to be able to fight back and be a mum and a footballer as well, which is, she really paved a path, didn't she? Yeah, absolutely. I guess it takes, um, you know, those people to have the, have the struggles and and really pave the way way for us um, in the end. And I guess going over to America and and seeing a couple of the players do it over there, um, and and them coming back bigger and stronger. Um, I knew it was possible um, if I had the support there. And and I guess it, it's happening more and more in Australia now um, across different codes and. Um, and, and most of most of the players are coming back bigger and better than they were. So um, I think it's exciting that people aren't, you know, retiring early um, to start a family and, and we're missing some of their peak stages of their life um, to do that. It used to happen so, heaps, didn't it? Absolutely. We mm. would, I mean, we were losing players at, at 26, um, which is when people hit their peaks. So I think now that... You know that you know people like Bubs and Heather have have kind of paved a way, um, and yeah, mm-hmm. um, for for the for us to have the support and um, for me to kind of be able to do what I'm doing now and 
and return to football, you know, I'm I'm really grateful for those people and appreciate everything that they kind of went through and the hard times they went through to show that, you know, we are capable of, of returning to to football if if the support's there. You're back at pre-season training already. How's that going? Day one um, of pre-season, I had a bit of a, a pre-pre-season. Um, so that was, it's been challenging, um, but I think really exciting as well. Uh, you know, be, being a footballer for so long, football has literally been my life. Um, you kind of wait for the training sessions and, and yeah, you give it your all in that time and then you go home and rest. And now I guess I, I'm a full-time mum and um, soccer is just for, for pure enjoyment and I've definitely found that um, in the last couple of weeks is, you know, for those two hours I, I just get to completely switch off my brain from everything that's going on and and just really enjoy football for what it is and I, I guess I kind of feel like a kid again is is it's just that pure enjoyment I have no expectation or pressure on myself I'm just out there kicking a ball and having two hours of not being a mum and um, <laughs> Harper being being cuddled by you know her, her grandma or, or the family so I think it's um, a pretty special time for me now every episode we ask someone, special to you to uh, to record a voice memo. There's a name mm-hmm. that you've mentioned in there. She was a really important part of your journey. She was your mm-hmm. roomie, a mm-hmm. former Matilda and legend, Michelle Heyman. Let's just take a listen to what she had to say. She's oh, got a special gosh. message for you. Bye, Minnie. Hi, Rumi. Wow. I'm just going to say it's been, a, it's been a long time since we've been able to see each other and I just wanted to say that I miss you so, so much. And, you know, I can't wait for this season for you to be back out on the field, um, to come down to Canberra, to see Harper in the stands, watching you play. It's just going to be one of the most amazing memories that you're going to build for yourself um, and me too. I'm just like another proud mum for you. I want you to know that you inspire myself, you inspire the next generation, you inspire pretty much everyone with what you have achieved with your comeback after having baby Harper. It's just something that a lot of people can't do. And here you are doing it a few months after giving birth. So again, um, I know you so personally and I know what you're all about and I know how strong you are and how much you can just develop within this year and you have the best shot to get back into the Matildas and to be the player that you used to be. Um, but I think you're going to be even better. I know that you've got that fire in your belly with Harper, you know, being your number one support. Um, I'm always going to be cheering you on, even though we play in different teams. You're still my my favourite player to watch and the one I hate to play against. But <laughs> I love you and I am so excited for you and I can't wait to be able to give you the biggest hug. Yeah, Love you to bits. You're the best. Uh, she's just amazing. Um, we've had some pretty incredible times together and some pretty tough times too, I guess. Um, you know, the Rio Olympics and losing some big games. But, yeah, she's um, a person that always knows how to put a smile on my face and 
Um, for anyone that knows her, she walks around with a smile on her face no matter no matter what. And, um, you know, I'm so glad that she was able to come back, um, you know, bigger and better as well. And, yeah, I'm just so thankful to have someone like her to share so many memories with um, and to hear how proud she is of me. I think it's, um, you know, means so much to me. And yeah, I can't. I can't wait to cuddle her. I can't wait to for her to meet Harper because, I mean, I probably bored her with the amount of times that I said, "I want a baby. I want to have a baby. I want to have a baby now. I'm going to have it in 2021." So um, for it to finally be here, and and like I said, she was one of the first people that I called and told, and she had tears running down her face. So yeah, she's someone really, really special to me. And um, if you ask my mum or, or my stepdad or, or my dad. Yeah, she's a, she's a part of our family and always mm. will be. Well, she's Dylan's wife, isn't she, really? She is Dylan's <laughs> wife, so technically she is a part of the family. <laughs> I love that. So, That's yeah, she, she is special. Well, to finish off the podcast, we ask every guest what message they would send their 10-year-old self. And what message would you tell little 10-year-old mini-mini? Um, I guess just enjoy every moment on the football field I guess as athletes we never really know when our last moment is um you know through injury you know mental health um anything like that I think just do it for for the enjoyment of it and um as hard as it is not to put too much you know pressure on yourself you know we we start playing because we love the game and I guess that can kind of get lost sometimes as an athlete. Um, after doing it so often, um, we, we lose the love, love and joy for the game. So I guess for me it would be, yeah, take every opportunity, keep enjoying it like you, you do when you're 10 years old. I love that. I've loved chatting to you. I love these important messages that you've been able to send through sharing your story and, um, yeah, your journey continues. Thank you so much, Minnie, for coming on On Her Game. No, thank you for having me. I'm glad I can share my story and hopefully, you know, help and inspire um, uh, people to, you know, either speak out if they have, um, you know, issues or problems or, or um, yeah, inspire people to to do what they want to do. Um, if that's have a baby and come back to, to the game that they love, then, then do that because... I think the next chapter of this football career of mine is going to be the most exciting yet. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.